The writer of Mark's Gospel seems not to have been interested in Christmas. He jumps straight into the story with a strange man who's out in the wilderness at one of those threshold places where the story of their people took a new turn generations before. Today, the same story calls us to another threshold. But while we step through it, Hi, my name's Stuart, and I get to be the minister here at St Ninian's in Stonehouse. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're glad that you have chosen to be with us. Today, I'm joined by Lisa. She'll lead us in prayer later, but for now, let's listen as she reads from Isaiah and from Mark. A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Each valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid, say to the towns of Judah. Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. 
After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It seemed so bland and ordinary to us. What a boring way to start a story. But to think that of the prologue to Mark's Gospel is to completely misunderstand just how radical that sentence and the Gospel that follows it are. The beginning means that this is the end of something and the start of something new. We know good news by another name, Evangelion or Gospel. Gospel wasn't even a religious word, it was a word with political meaning and power. When Mark used it in this way, to start the story of the Messiah, the Son of God, it was hugely subversive. A gospel was of course a manifesto, the good news of what's available in the Roman Empire. It sets out the privileges and responsibilities of becoming a citizen of the Empire. And they sent an apostle, a person who represented the government of Rome, the kingdom, the Empire, to proclaim the gospel. And when a new heir was born, that was a time of celebration, and it was called Advent. So from the very start of Mark's good news, the advent of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, we need to realise that this is no simple account of the life and times of Jesus. Rowan Williams suggests that Mark's gospel is nothing short of a book about regime change. It's loaded with politics. It's thoroughly incendiary. It mocks the Roman Empire. It shows the real gospel, the real good news, is of a very different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that Jesus the Messiah invites us into. This story from its very first line sets out its intention to change the world, to change everything. That's what we are waiting for in Advent. Nothing less than a revolution. So from a start like that, where does Mark go next? Back of course to the great exile prophecies of Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. The revolution is coming. A complete change, a new kingdom. The waiting is almost over. The time of exile is almost ended. And it will come from the wilderness, from the outside, not from the temple. It seems important to mark that the story of the Messiah doesn't begin with Mary's conception or even Jesus' birth. Of course, it's John who will remind us that the story begins at the beginning of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and through the Word all things were created. Mark seems keen to place his Gospel in the cycle of exile, the central story of God and his people. That broken relationship lies right at the heart of our story. A divorce, a breakup, a split. Finally, a reconciliation. And then it all happens again. And yet, through all the pain, hope remains. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Hope. There's always hope. The Babylonian exile ends and the people return home to find everything has changed. The temple's been destroyed, the city of Jerusalem flattened, its walls torn down. But God is still their God. He was always there with them, wherever they went. 
and they'd forgotten that and it took them a long time to remember. Eventually, the Romans appear. More occupation, more suppression and oppression. Another broken relationship with the land and more exile. Our problem seems to be that for all of that history, we still don't understand. We just don't get that God loves us. We still amass our wealth and build our temples. We value things other than God. We think we can manage by ourselves. Walter Brueggemann suggests that Advent is not just a particular time in the church calendar when we think about exile and longing. It characterises all church time. We're a group who lives with our past in ruins and no clear future, with many of the things of home gone or broken. So to some extent we all live in our own exile. Because exile is when we forget our story. Exile isn't just about location. Exile is about the state of our souls. Exile is when we fail to convert our blessings into blessings for others. Exile is when we find ourselves a stranger to the purposes of God. So, God comes to us because we're too stubborn to go to him. And for Mark, that's the point. It's not that the birth of Jesus isn't important, just that for him the bigger picture seems to matter much more. The history and the politics and the very real sense of exile are the background for him. It's into this context that John, this herald of the Messiah, arrived crying out those age-old words in the place where new beginnings come from. This is the setting in which God comes to us here on earth, with us. It's into that same story of broken relationship, of oppression and slavery and disobedience and shame that God still speaks hope. Hope. Because God still loves us. Even though we have repeatedly broken that covenant, the relationship, the promise. Hope must be our context. Hope that God hasn't given up on us. And God's hope that we haven't given up on God. Hope that a new way is near. Hope that the day of the Lord will come. The same hope of the exile. So we must turn to Luke and Matthew to tell us the story of the birth. The angels and shepherds and wise men are theirs. And yet in many ways, John and Mark give us perhaps a more compelling view of God's arrival. Set right in the heart of this ongoing story of exile and renewal. But before Mark introduces us to this Jesus Christ, the first character we're introduced to is a wild man in the wilderness, wearing his camel hair tunic and a leather belt, eating locusts and honey out there on the edge of the desert, railing against corruption and injustice and calling everyone who goes anywhere near him to confess their sins and to be baptised, because the day of the Lord is coming, soon. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the end of the old ways, the man sent to open the door and usher us across the threshold into something new. For hundreds of years, these men and women have spoken of this moment, the time when God will again come near. So it seems particularly appropriate that John should start by quoting the greatest of all the prophets, Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. What does that mean? This isn't some big civil engineering 
Well, what does that mean? This isn't some big civil engineering project. No, the preparation is for us to do in our own lives. John's offering the people something precious. A chance to start over. The realisation of their hope. It begins by first confessing. Confession's a complicated word. It really means naming the truth. So if I confess to having done something, I'm naming the truth of that event. But finding the truth isn't always straightforward. My view of events might differ from yours. So we have to try to agree to find a shared understanding of the truth. It's in that conversation and that agreeing that the next stage happens. Redemption through the forgiveness of sins. Of all the things that are promised in Jesus, the chance to be forgiven and to be renewed and restored are perhaps the most precious and the most difficult. Precious for those in need of forgiveness and difficult for those who have been wronged. The work of forgiveness is founded on that shared understanding. The acknowledgement of the truth of what happened and how people felt and in what ways they were affected. Speaking those truths and hearing them spoken can be both incredibly painful and also liberating. It's as big a task as levelling mountains and valleys. But of all the things that we're invited into, the task of confession and forgiveness is the most profound and life-changing. The people Isaiah spoke to were in captivity, taken off to a strange land and held as prisoners. They were in exile, separated from all that they they knew and separated from where they wanted to be, longing for the time when they could return. I think we can all relate to that after years of COVID restrictions, to be distant from those we love, to be unable to do the things that give us joy and separated from each other is a painful experience. It made us long for the days when the doors would be flung open again, when we would once more be able to join together, to celebrate and to mourn together too. The day of release came for the exiles. But the liberation wasn't instant. It began with hope. Even in the midst of all that's happened, all the pain and the loss and the sadness and the despair, hope remains. Comfort. Comfort my people, says the Lord. It's been the story of these people right from the beginning. And their pain they cry out to God and God hears them and God responds and leads them home. It was a long journey home, back across the wilderness, the very desert where John stands now. It wasn't just a physical journey though. It was more than rebuilding all that had been destroyed, renewing Jerusalem from the rubble. The restoration was one of self-examination, discovering what it had been that had led to all of this in the first place. Facing their collective arrogance and disobedience, they had wandered so far from the way they were supposed to live. But they had a chance to learn, to be forgiven, to start over again. John the Baptist spoke to people who were also captives, stuck in their own exile. Their prison, like ours, was made without bars, but with their own actions. 
walls created from their poor decisions, and John was offering them a way out. But it wasn't some quick fix with a dunk in the river and everything will be okay. This immersion in water, this baptism, it's symbolic. A public demonstration of what was going on inside. That everything was being washed clean. That they were ready to begin the hard work of reconciliation and renewal. They needed to be set free. Set free from all the things that oppressed them because they were consumed by their guilt or the consequences of something that they did or by the impact of events that were not even of their own doing. We so often can't see what lies beyond the things that have happened to us or the things we've done. And John needs the people to see, needs us to see, because something incredible is about to be unveiled. John points to Jesus the one who will baptise with more than water, but with the breath of the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, the Messiah, the Saviour, bringer of new life and the end of exile forever. Hope fulfilled, exile ended, God here among us. But first there's hard work to be done, the hard work of confession and restoration, of forgiveness and new life. God of faithful grace and goodness, we give thanks for the words of hope and comfort that echo down the centuries, from Isaiah to John the Baptist, from Jesus of Nazareth through Mark the Evangelist, through translators and publishers and printers to us here today. Comfort them, the prophet is told. Tell them that they have suffered long enough their sins are forgiven. And so he does. So she does. So they do. Faithful God, may we be open to hear your word and daring enough to look in unlikely places for signs of your presence. May we be wise enough to discern which of the many voices that we hear speaks for you and brave enough to pass on the radical good news that we hear. As John spoke from a barren desert place to people in the margins, far from the centres of power, so we pray for those who live on the margins now, their births uncelebrated, their deaths not publicly grieved. We pray for refugees, and asylum seekers, for clients of food banks in this country, and for others who lack even that safety net. We pray for those in positions of power, the best of whom feel powerless and admit it, troubled by the huge responsibility that they bear. May this be an opportunity for all of us to reassess what really matters and what sort of world we want to live in. May our, un may our vulnerability create a crack through which your light can shine, as the solid ground of our confidence is shaken. May a tiny mustard seed of faith drop in, and your kingdom have a chance to grow. God, in just such times as these, have you sent your prophets to challenge the powerful and comfort 
the oppressed. In just such times as these have you slipped in alongside your people to let them know that they are not alone, for you are with them. May we be among those who help to prepare the way for your coming. And may all the honour and glory be yours. And so we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we go into this week, may we prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths that lead to God in our hearts and in our souls, through our words and in our actions, by our choices and our decisions. And may we go as God's beloved, loved by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, today and always. Thank you.